I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Tuesday, October 16th, 2018. A college football coach is suspended amidst a school investigation into various allegations of player mistreatment. It's later revealed that school administrators had received a letter, long before any action was taken, warning of an abusive culture in the program. The football coach is adamant about staying in his job and seeking vindication. Moreover, he has a huge contract buyout, and the athletic department is already under intense financial pressures caused, in part, by the continued debt owed on a pricey athletic construction project. Does any of this sound familiar? The significant difference for the University of Maryland and its embattled football coach DJ Durkin is that there was a death. Jordan McNair, a Terrapins offensive lineman, collapsed from exhaustion and heat stroke during a team practice in May and later died in the hospital. It was subsequently reported by ESPN that the football staff, at best, failed to act on obvious signs of McNair's physical distress. Since that time, reporting by my guest on today's podcast, has further illuminated other institutional failures that led to such a horrendous result. Rick Mace is a Washington Post sports reporter who previously worked at the Baltimore Sun and the Orlando Sentinel. A native New Mexican, Mace, like yours truly, got his start in journalism at the now-defunct afternoon daily, the Albuquerque Tribune. Somehow, Mace managed to hold down full-time employment at the Trib while also attending and graduating from his alma mater, the University of New Mexico. Since then, Mace has covered various Olympics, World Series, and Super Bowls. He served as the Post's NFL Redskins beat writer for three seasons, and his professional distinctions include a National Headliners Award for sports reporting, which he won when he was 25. I should note that his personal distinctions are highlighted with his serving as a groomsman in my wedding. Over the last couple of months, Mace has targeted his focus to cover the fallout of McNair's death, revealing a number of alarming details about what the school knew or should have known was going on with its football team. In our ensuing conversation, Mace and I compare notes about the experiences and takeaways of covering the alleged wrongdoings of a program and the challenges of penetrating the embedded code of silence in college football particularly. The conversation runs the balance of an hour. And so, without further ado, I give you Rick Mace. Rick Mace, welcome to the NM Fishbowl podcast. Wonderful to be here. Um, Long time reader. <laughs> that's probably, you may be my longest time reader since I believe I started sending you uh, my stories or emailing them to you first. So that that's not untrue. Um, I am get a special a special award for that service. You're, 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 the, uh, you're the third guest on the podcast. That's your... Uh, that's your your award. I want to describe you as a proud New Mexico grad because when I want a University of New Mexico grad, because when I went on the uh, the Washington Post website last week, I noticed that if you go, if you click onto your bio, the very first thing it says is education, University of New Mexico. So before we we dive into the heavy stuff, let us let us recall how we know each other and and. Uh, I met you, I think, around 1999 or 2000 when I was interning at the Albuquerque Tribune. 
you were already on staff and I believe you were attending UNM at the same time and yet holding down a full-time job at the Tribune. Can you, can you recall those moments fondly for, for a moment? <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Um, I mean, I went, went to, grew up in Albuquerque, went to, went to college in New Mexico, and I kind of think I had a, a dual education. I feel like I was educated both at UNM and also at the Albuquerque Tribune. They were very gracious at the Tribune, the, the late great afternoon newspaper in Albuquerque. Um, and they let me kind of intern throughout high school and hang around, and they finally gave me employment. So I kind of juggled full-time schooling and full-time work uh, the, my last couple my last couple years in college. I think I did the uh, five-year plan at UNM, which I think was pretty popular among, among many of my peer group. Given that I saw you in the Tribune all the time, I don't actually even know how you pulled off graduating in five years. But it speaks to, uh, it speaks to something. Yeah, I, I would say I was a better worker than I was a student, and my sure my, my grades would probably attest to that if I remembered what they were. Um, but they were definitely not among the first two letters of the alphabet for the most part. Why are we? I I, I imagine like you are, are quite fond of the Tribune, and I'm quite glad that that was the first place I worked. In part because it was a sort of it was the it was the little dog in in, in the market. Um, and it had that kind of instinct and personality, and I felt like that shaped me going forward. Um, and I imagine it kind of shaped everybody who worked there, that we had to be a little bit more creative, a little bit more daring, because we were not the paper, we were not the paper of record, per se, in Albuquerque. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, 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 very, I'm very glad I, that was where I got my start, as opposed to any number of other places. Yeah, it's also, it was just a nurturing environment. You can't think of too many newsrooms where a high school student uh, like you or, or me, and we both did this very similarly, kind of just walk through the front doors and be given responsibilities and tasks and um, not just given those things, but you have someone, you know, sit with you and tell you how you could do it better and how you can improve. So it was just the, the collection of people and personalities and it was a very eclectic group, um, but it was very nurturing and a, it's a, a place that, not a lot of journalists, you know, have a, a, the opportunity to kind of start in a place like that. And we were very fortunate that we didn't start there at 22 or 23, but we started there as teenagers. You went from there to then the Orlando Sentinel, um, from the Sentinel to the Baltimore Sun, and now you're currently at the Washington Post. And though you've written about college sports at each of these places, including when you were at the Tribune, you've never covered college sports as a beat, per se. You've covered the NFL as a beat. You've covered baseball, I believe, as a beat or beat light. Um, can you tell me, did you ever have an interest in covering a college beat, or are you glad that you didn't have to do that? Uh, no, I don't think beat work in general is, is something I enjoy. So it's not, not a knock on colleges or any pro team, but I just prefer kind of having a variety to, to the coverage topics that I write about. And, um, so it's nothing to do with, with colleges specifically, but I just like waking up and, and meeting different people and tackling different issues. And you can certainly do that within under the college umbrella. Um, so, so there's a lot of great opportunities there. Um, it just hasn't, it hasn't been something that's kind of popped up on my radar or anything that I've pursued. So uh, you are right now, as we speak, um, kind of fully enmeshed in a story that has been percolating out of the University of Maryland, um, dealing with their... Uh, football program and it's really kind of consumed the entire university as I feel these things often do. Um, can you tell me who is or maybe I should say who was Jordan McNair and why he's become 
such a story for this university? Sure. So Jordan McNair uh, was a, a football player originally from the Baltimore area, and he was entering his second season on the University of Maryland football team. He was an offensive lineman and uh, 19 years old, and uh, the team began their kind of spring workouts on May 29th, and that day was supposed to be kind of baseline uh, conditioning testing, and they were kind of running some sprints. They are supposed to do a series of 10, 110-yard sprints, and on the seventh sprint, uh, Jordan became winded, wasn't able to finish, um, couldn't finish the eighth, ninth, or tenth ones either, and at the end, he kind of uh, collapsed. He was struck with with, uh, exertional heat stroke, so... The, his body was kind of overcome and um, he ended up being hospitalized that day and he died uh, less than two weeks later in, in a hospital room and the whole issue is kind of um, just consumed uh, the football program the athletic department and in many ways the, the university ever since then did people suspect there might have been an issue immediately upon his death and by people I would I would maybe divide those into a couple of different camps did reporters who covered this covered Maryland covered college football immediately start hearing things about maybe there was more to the story than just an accidental death maybe there was some culpability somewhere um, it's hard for me to say and you know I wasn't around um, the program then I didn't really move on to this story until mid-august so um, I was only kind of reading about it at the time but I would say that anytime there's a death of a college athlete um, you know, your ears perk up and you wonder why, you know, 19-year-olds are not supposed to die, you know, during exercise. So I think one thing that created some uncertainty or class cast a little bit of doubt was just that there wasn't a lot of information in those first first few days. Um, they, there, there wasn't, you know, a, a strict diagnosis or cause of death or a reason that he was hospitalized. Players and coaches weren't available to answer questions, so you just didn't really know what happened. Um, a lot of information was coming secondhand, and, you know, no one was jumping to conclusions. I think they were just kind of uh, where there were a ton of questions out there that, that weren't really being answered. Let's talk a little bit about Maryland football and Maryland's athletic department having joined the Big Ten, um, where it sort of finds itself, what, is, what are its sort of the more macro issues that are facing this, because um, I, I imagine that these also are shaping what has unfolded over the last couple of months. So can you kind of give a little bit of a backstory on the, the recent history, maybe the, the, the post-joining Big Ten history of, uh, of Maryland? Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, again, I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't cover this program on a close basis for, for a long time. So, um, but generally, Maryland is a school similar to New Mexico in the sense that basketball is kind of the big dog on campus. Um, and, you know, they came from the ACC, a wonderful basketball conference. And football has always kind of played second fiddle a little bit. Certainly, you know, they, they reached bowl games and they had great attendance for years. And Ralph Region, I think, took them to the Orange Bowl um, at least once during, during his tenure. Uh, but basketball was always the big thing. And, you know, they won a national championship uh, under Gary Williams. And, and that's what's always brought them attention and, and a lot of money. Uh, but the opportunity came up when uh, the, the conferences were shuffling teams a few years back. To, to join the Big Ten, which is a big football conference, and with that, that comes, you know, big dollars. And so the president of the university kind of jumped at the opportunity, uh, moved them to the Big Ten, where they're still very competitive, you know, on the basketball front. Football, you know, they're, they're clearly, you know, the, the, the bottom tier there, but they stand to make a lot, a lot more money. And, you know, I don't think anyone's under any illusions of why they made the move. It was a financial decision, and it was a way to kind of um, bolster the, the the athletic department and, and keep a lot more money in the coffers. So um, since then, you know, where they're, they're, they've hired 
you know, coaches that, that command money, they're, they're making some um, structural improvements and, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of changes on campus. So um, I don't know that anyone has huge regrets, though at the time there was certainly a lot of um, doubts and uncertainty and people skeptical of, of the move just because they, they associate themselves for so long with this, this top-tier basketball conference. Tell me about the man who's sort of most under fire right now, I, I would suppose, which is the head football coach, DJ Durkin. Even if what you know about him has become retrospective to, to what you've reported over the last couple of years or last couple of months, what was, what was thought of him, let's say, prior to um, Jordan's death? Well, maybe before that, let's jump back in the timeline a little bit. So Jordan dies, uh, you know, June 13th, I believe it was. And really, things are kind of quiet until uh, early to mid-August. And I think it was August 10th, ESPN comes out with two reports. One was really um, about about Jordan's death and, and what happened there. And the second one was something that really looked at the culture of the football program and uh, labeled it as a toxic culture and insinuated that in some way this, this culture uh, might have contributed or led to Jordan's death. Um, so that's really what um, created a huge huge shockwaves uh, across campus and really it became a national story at that point and that was a, a Friday and that's the evening I got a phone call from my bosses that say hey we want you to really focus on this uh, full time indefinitely um, so really um, you know he falls at a practice May 29th and things are mostly quiet um, you know without a lot of answers without a lot of availability until mid-August when this ESPN report drops um, and you know, since then, the, the, it was the very next day that the administration put DJ Durkin on administrative leave. They didn't say there was anything done wrong on his part, but they were just kind of saying, acknowledging that there's a lot of questions that need to be asked, and maybe he shouldn't be coaching this football team until they get some answers. Um, so that is almost nine weeks ago now that we're talking about that, that DJ Durkin has, has been getting paid, but not actually coaching and not, not allowed to be around the team. Um, they also put three other people on leave that day, two trainers and a strength and conditioning coach. Um, and, you know, really it, it all kind of comes back to Durkin. They've kind of said that, that the day that Jordan, um, you know, fell, fell down and collapsed, that, you know, they, they pinned that on the trainers and the, the medical personnel on hand. Um, but when we talk about the culture of the football program, well, the, the head coach is kind of the CEO. He's the guy that knows everything going on. And if there's something about the culture that led or contributed to, to Jordan McNair's death, well, D.J. Durkin's the one that could be held, held accountable. So. Um, he's, a, he's a guy that this is his first head coaching job. He was a, a coordinator at Michigan under Jim Harbaugh right before this, and I think people thought they were kind of getting a, a young and up-and-coming coach, a, a kind of guy that could make them actually competitive in the Big Ten, could help them recruit, um, you know, not just to throw up the Midwest, but in places like Florida where they struggled to get top athletes before, and, and to secure kind of the, the recruiting ground around Maryland where there's a lot of great athletes in the D.C. area, throughout Virginia, even into Pennsylvania. So he came in here as kind of a big shot with big expectations. Now, they didn't win a ton of games the first couple of years, um, but, but the boosters certainly liked him. They felt like he was recruiting good players, and they felt like the, the program was pointed in the right direction. There's two echoes I'm hearing as you talk about him that, rela- that kind of remind me of, what's, of, of things that have happened with New Mexico's football history of, of late. One is the uh, Mike Loxley, who obviously also had a reputation for being a terrific recruiter around the D.C. and Chesapeake area, um, but that didn't quite exactly parlay into being a successful head coach in New Mexico. And then um, some of what has kind of emerged in your report, in your reporting particular, particularly about 
sort of what what is said um, about Durkin really echoes what I had reported about Bob Davey, you know, over this past year, um, which is which boils down to this question about what is tough coaching and what almost veers into a kind of institutionalized psychopathy at, at a point where you you know and and this tumbles forth a, after a catalyst the catalyst at maryland was was so much more vibrant than anything at new mexico in that there was a, the death of a of a human being um tell me some of what you had heard in in, in the reporting talking to former players their parents and, and basically conducting a parallel investigation of what Maryland was doing. It seems like you've talked to a number of people who have spoken to the, uh, to the group that is investigating this on behalf of the school. What, what are some of the, uh, the common themes you're hearing? Well, I mean, I guess the, the initial concerns is, is, is there bullying or uh, abuse within the Maryland program? And is it something that is... Um, goes above and beyond what's acceptable or what you'd get in other other programs. Um, and so what we kind of did was we did we, we set out to kind of trace the, the official investigation's footsteps a little bit and find out what they're hearing. And so we talked to a number of um, parents and former players to kind of describe what it was like in there. And, and they did describe to us incidences where, um, you know, players were humiliated. They were, um, they were ridiculed. You know, if a player um, weighed in too much, you know, he'd be forced to to eat a bunch of candy he'd be brought into the middle of a you know a group of players and um you know kind of ridiculed and embarrassed and they dump snacks and rice crispy treats on them um other cases where it was um this is more physical in nature if, if you were hurt you you'd have to go to the special area of practice where you're kind of forced to do physical activity um which doesn't really make sense when you're trying to, to heal or get better but it was a way of kind of shining a spotlight on you and saying well you know maybe you can't run but we can make sure you're going to you know, do this activity with your arms, you know, the, the entire time. And the, and the issue and with McNair it sort of falls in line with that, which was he was being pressed to run uh, and do drills at a time when he was clearly struggling, and he was struggling because his body was in the process of shutting down. And the issue with him, as I understand, was that there was no medical intervention on behalf of anybody on the staff. They sort of quite the opposite they they kind of goaded him into continuing to press his body past the point of of exhaustion and then and then quite a bit after that um yeah you know even when we talk to people that support Durkin and the strength coach who is who's the only one that's left the, the, the program um you know they don't deny that some of these things took place they just say that the intent behind it was not to hurt or punish kids it was to encourage and motivate them and certainly there's some some former players that thrived in that kind of environment um, you know we all take different kind of teaching we all respond to different kind of uh, coaching um, so I think one of the difficult things that investigators and ultimately the Board of Regents are going to have to decide was were they motivating kids or were they abusing kids and what, what's the line there and you know what, what might feel like motivation to you or me could, could very well feel like bullying to, to, to another person so um, you know a lot of these things that the investigation is going to find out I don't know that it's going to be necessarily in doubt it's just going to be how do we interpret it um, the coaches clearly seemed like they thought they were doing right by the kids and trying to get them to um, reach their potential or exceed their potential on some level. And a lot of kids felt otherwise. They felt like they were being targeted. They were being abused, humiliated, uh, singled out. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, you're, we're going to find out the coaches are not going to deny a ton of things. They're going to deny the intent that, that's perceived behind them. And the border regents are going to have a lot to sort out there because we're not talking about a thing specific to Maryland football. 
Uh, I think a lot of the incidences that are cited in this report are going to be things that you're going to find in a lot of programs. They're going to be similar to things that happen in Michigan or Ohio State or New Mexico. It's just, is it acceptable in college football? Is it acceptable in any kind of workplace or any kind of school environment where we, we send our kids, um, you know, to, to hopefully to learn and get degrees? Um, you know, clearly they, they push them for, for other reasons as well. Right, and that, and that gets back to the whole point of what is the standard that any of us are judging this behavior by. I mean, I, when I started talking to former Lobo football players who played under Bob Davey, one of the challenges that even they had in trying to decide whether or not what they experienced, you know, was abuse or something more akin to just normal football experiences was that they only had one experience. I mean, they hadn't, they didn't play for 25 different college football teams so that they could judge um, how Bob Davey treated them compared to any number of other college football coaches. Even if they had that experience, I guess at a certain point, what does it matter? I mean, if this is a common ailment of college football that athletes are being put in untenable and unhealthy situations, it, it probably ought not matter, though it certainly does, how common this is. Um, and, you know, but here, here we are. I mean, I, I would imagine, I, 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 would, I would assume it's a safe bet to say that had Jordan McNair not died, this conversation wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having this now. And whatever, whatever, whatever else people felt about Durkin or about the way he treated players, I mean, likely would have been spared for years in terms of a, of a discussion or an investigation by the school. I don't know. I mean, it'd be totally possible. Maybe that's the most likely scenario. But also, I mean, one of the bigger reporting things that we had in this, this story was, you know, a parent sent a letter a year and a half before Jordan McNair died, and he sent it to, to the athletic director, to the school president, and said, you know, these kids are being abused. So I, I do think there could have been some, some whistle, potential whistleblowers that would have reached their breaking point to come forward, um, you know, with or without a, a student death. Um, but then you, you still come back to the same questions. And when, when I talk to Dirk and defenders, I hear two things over and over. One is this happens everywhere. Why, why is Maryland being singled out? And the other is that it's only, you know, a few, a few kids that were disgruntled, that didn't like their playing time. And those are the ones speaking out and complaining. Um, and I don't really know how to respond to that because I don't know what the magic number is of how many kids have to have bad experiences for there to be a, a larger um, cultural issue or a systemic kind of issue. Um, I think if you have, you know, any number of players that, that are saying, hey, this is a, a bad, unhealthy, toxic environment, it's worth looking into and figuring out um, the problem there. You know, like any sports team or maybe any kind of organization, there's a few high performers that are going to get kind of star treatment. They're going to they're going to get some kind of benefits, whether they're tangible or just kind of, um, you know, inherent because of what they bring to the table. And, you know, college football or college athletics, you also have this issue of, like, coaches want to – they want to get rid of the, the players that aren't contributing. They want to free up those scholarships. So how do they do that? They make, they make those players a little bit um, less comfortable. They try to make them feel like they're unwanted. And I think that's one thing that we did notice, that some of the players that had the worst treatment were guys that – you know, Durkin maybe didn't want around there. Maybe he, he did want their scholarship, but he was trying to entice them um, to leave and, and make their their experience at Maryland, um, you know, so so difficult that, that they didn't want to stick around and continue using up that scholarship. So um, certainly those issues are ones that apply and will continue to apply to, to every big 
big time sports program going forward. To the point that you just made about the, the sort of the reflexive response to critics is to then question, you know, whether or not this really just boils down to their lack of playing time or their lack of opportunity. Um, I don't know what kind of experience you had in or have had in reporting this story, but I spent about a year talking or attempting to talk to former uh, Lobo football players while Bob Davey was being investigated. And my experience was even people who would have had every reason along those lines to speak out about Bob Davey were incredibly loath to do so. There is such a kind of intrinsic pressure against talking out in this environment, talking out about a coach you don't like, especially to reporters or let's say school investigators, that I, I feel like people kind of misunderstand. Just, yeah, somebody might have had a bad experience, but there's so many reasons why, even if you had a, a terrible personal experience, why you, you feel it to be totally unbeneficial to yourself to speak out about that experience. If you have any hope of working in this profession one day, you certainly don't want to be tagged as a complainer or a rat. Um, and, and most people, especially most former athletes, I feel, once they leave an uncomfortable situation, don't really want to dwell on this. You know, this, is, this, is, this doesn't redound to their benefit in any meaningful way. They're not going to get money out of this, likely. At least, I'm, I'm not, not necessarily talking about Jordan McNair. I'm talking about other voices who have come forward in this, in this story that you've been reporting. Um, and so, I mean, that, that was one of the more frustrating things, uh, having experienced the challenge of getting people who I had identified would be the most likely candidates to want to speak out about something, and yet having to spend months, if not over a year, trying to get these people to actually speak, only for them, only for their words to then be, you know, uh, construed as just purely self-serving and, and because of that, easy to dismiss. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, we did... We went to great lengths to talk to as many people as possible and, you know, knocking on doors and, and cold calling people and, and reaching out to them through, through various social media platforms. And, you know, um, uh, uh, not that not, people didn't want to like necessarily deny it, but sometimes they just didn't want to engage. They wanted to move on with their lives. They didn't want to reflect. Um, a, lot of, a lot of what we heard was, what's the point? Nothing's going to change anyway. And I think that's what you really need. Um, and anyone who's going to be a whistleblower in some fashion is they got to believe that um, coming forward will make a difference. And a lot of people in, in this universe don't feel like that's the case because they know um, there's the, the, the power dynamic is tilted so heavily toward a, toward a head coach. Um, you know, that, that's, who, that's who's making, you know, seven figures. That's who calls the shots. That's who's protected by boosters, by athletic directors, school presidents. And especially for, for people that want to stay in that industry, whether it's a coach or a player, um, students that are now playing or transferred to, to other schools, um, they just don't see how it benefits them to, to speak out and put their name to things. And that's why I was so happy in our last story that we did have a few players that were willing to put their names to it because it lends it some, some credibility. Yeah, these guys have, have, have tried to move on, but they're, they're so distraught and, and shaken up by what happened is they felt like they had to come forward and put their names to it. These are experiences where people are still suffering um, from from mental illness associated with their time at Maryland. Um, they they had depression. There there's kids that um, you know they, they they said they're basically suffering from PTSD. You know a year or two years removed from the program. So that's how um, that's how kind of uh, deep rooted some of the, the the pain that they felt was. So I can I can understand and empathize with someone who who feels like that pain is is so raw and so real that they don't want to visit it and and you know rip open a scab and, and, and share that with people. I understand it, um, but I also 
think there's a huge value in people revisiting, especially if you know you don't want other students to kind of suffer the same fate or same consequence. And I think also there's this um, kind of attitude that's just baked into football, into college sports, and, and maybe most acutely into college football, where you know the the team mentality and and the and not wanting to speak out or speak out of turn is just so inculcated in everyone. I, I had the experience of, after some of the Davy stories I wrote, um, being called by now retired um, former assistants who worked with Davy at Notre Dame. So people who have no career left in football who are on the other side of that experience, who have no real connection to Bob Davy, don't need him for any, anything anymore, and still uh, you know, it was this weird dance we did where they would reach out to me because they wanted to say, oh, I, I got to tell you about my time at, at Notre Dame. And, that, and they, they ultimately couldn't bring themselves to talk about this. And I, again, I just feel like this is from, from Yaffle on up. This is just this, this mentality that really is ingrained in, in the culture of, of, of college football, most particularly that you just, you know, it, it, the ethics of just shutting up and taking it, basically. Yeah, one thing that was interesting to us at Maryland was like, how much did the people around the program, um, how did they feel? They're the ones that saw it every day. What did they think? Um, and even, you know, we would hear from players or former players saying, oh, you got to go talk to this assistant coach or you got to talk to this guy. Um, you know, those are people that didn't want to talk because they're still in the sport and they, they just don't feel like they can, they can come forward and say anything. Um, and I don't know if there is a day when, when they're going to feel comfortable coming forward and, and, sharing their, their true feelings about what went on, but it's a really tough nut to crack. And, um, you know, I mean, I think that's why, why we, we can say like, we think some of this stuff happens at a lot of programs, but you don't hear about it a lot of programs because not a lot of people feel comfortable to come forward and, and share these experiences. You and um, uh, your, your Washington Post colleague, Roman Stubbs, who I, I understand is the Maryland beat reporter, right? He was the former beat reporter. Former beat reporter. You wrote, you co-authored a story on September 7th that kind of laid out the financial consequences that Maryland was now going to potentially face in the wake of the McNair scandal. Um, you talked about coaching buyouts uh, that could accrue into the millions. You talked about, uh, obviously, the settlement with McNair's family and his estate, the, in the process of having to hire a new staff. And then you also noted that all of this was going to kind of stultify the school's efforts to pay off the remaining part of what to me reads like an obscene athletics department capital project, this $196 million indoor football practice facility. Can you kind of take me to that because, through that dynamic, the, the, the potential cost? Because I, I believe um, this is probably informing how the school is, one, conducting its investigation, um, and, and to uh, some of the public statements that have been made by the university president and others. Yeah, and so just going off the top of my head, I'm not going to be able to be as detailed as you probably like about that, but they did, they did, um, they did start this huge construction project at the Coalfield House. It's a historic um, kind of basketball arena here in town. It's where, like, you know, Lefty Drizelle and, and some of Gary Williams' early teams played um, before they built, you know, a mega arena on campus. And they kind of convert it into a football, into our football facility. And there's supposed to be an underground tunnel that leads to the, the locker room. And there was a lot involved. And my understanding at the beginning of this, they were hoping the boosters would kind of pay for, for the, the bulk of it. Well, that didn't happen. You know, Maryland is not Michigan, and they don't have uh, 
you know, an endless supply of, of big dollar uh, football boosters. So I think they were having to dip into school funds. And it's one of those things where you still hope that boosters step forward. And this is one of those things that kind of makes that more difficult. And so, um, you know, every dollar you, you got to spend to hire new coaches or to pay a, a legal fee is dollars you're not spending to pay off this mega construction project that, that you've kind of under, undertaken. So um, every, everything, there's, there's a ton of dominoes when it comes to these things. And this is clearly a, the kind of event that's going to cost the university you know, it's going to be a seven or eight figure kind of thing uh, easily. Um, and so, so the ramifications are not just this season and this football team and this football staff, but it's one of those things that the, the school could be dealing with on some level for years to come. You mentioned before that somebody has already been dismissed. It was the strength coach, right? Yes. And what, but he, he wasn't fired. He was effectively bought out. How much was he bought out for, and why do you think the school decided to just go that route as opposed to actually trying to fire him for cause? Yeah, so a lot of the, the allegations of abuse and bullying comes, comes back to the strength and conditioning coach. His name's Rick Court, and he was D.J. Durkin's first hire, and he was the guy that Durkin brought in to change the culture of the program. Um, to, to, to make it kind of this uh, very demanding, um, I don't know if pressure filled with his intent, but that was kind of the result or what a lot of players say they would say was the result. Um, and so that was the guy that a lot of people said was the, the, the primary source of abuse, bullying, uh, humiliation, fear. And so I believe I, we, the ESPN report dropped August 10th. Um, by August 13th, recorded and negotiated a settlement. I think he made like maybe $250,000. He had a couple years left on his contract, so he took a settlement for $310,000 and, and walked that day. So he's the only person that's, that's left the university. And I think if you look at a lot of football programs, these strength and conditioning coaches do have more and more power and more and more influence. They're, they're around the kids 12 months out of the year. Um, you know, in the, in the off season when the, the contact between the assistant, the position coaches, coordinators, and head coaches is limited, the strength and conditioning coach is right there every day. Um, they're the ones pushing them in the gym, in the weight room, um, you know, on the, on the practice field. Um, so I think that was there, was, there was something that came out of that report that made the university decide, hey, you know, this, this guy seems like a bad actor in some sense. We should see if we can just part ways with him right here. And so the, the Rick Court did not admit to any wrongdoing, but in his statement that he released, he kind of said, like, he, I feel like it's the best thing if I just leave and, and let the school move forward without me. So, um, it's a, it's a lot of money. Um, it's, it's not nearly as much as it's going to cost to, you know, say goodbye to DJ Durkin or some others. And if they would have waited, it's very, very possible that they could have found they could have found cause. Possibly could have found cause right then. But I think they were looking for a simple, clean break, and that was the easiest way to do it. And of course, if they litigate or if they f attempt to fire him for cause, and he then litigates it, I don't know what he had happened in his contract. If it's an arbitration or if he can go to trial. But in the event, as many of these contracts permit. The, co the coach or the staffer could then sue, you run the risk, although I think this is Maryland's fated to, for this to happen anyway, but you run the risk of a whole, you know, people throwing other people under the bus in the course of that. And so even though on all of these contracts, there's these fire for cause clauses that seem to be pretty elastic, um, it's so rare that anybody ultimately is fired for cause. Uh, which maybe is a kind of a statement about the way that these contracts are ultimately uh, drafted. Um, 
because again, it, it keeps falling back that you know the institution ultimately just wants to move past this. I mean, they're not really seeking ultimate accountability for any individual or some kind of expurgation of every of every wrong that's that's been committed on their watch. They just want to move past it. The easiest way to do that is to just come to some sort of settlement terms. Um, is well, that if you litigate too? If you litigate too, you can claim future damages, right? You can say like, right. um, you know, you fired me and it ruined my reputation and prevented me from getting another $2 million a year job. So rather than settle for, you know, $3 million or, or do the buyout for $5 million, I'm going to sue you for $15 million because you impacted my future income as well. So I, I suppose you can say you run the risk there. Um, it's really hard to say what's going to happen in this, this Maryland situation. So, I mean, DJ Durkin clearly did not want to resign, did not want to open up you know, any kind of settlement uh, negotiations. He feels like he's going to be cleared and be able to return to the sideline. Um, the bulk of the football boosters are have pledged their support to him. So those are people you might usually approach to help you buy out a contract or to help you, uh, you know, part ways with the coach. So it's not clear if, if those people are going to be available to the university, if they, they need to come up with some funds in the near future. And then, like you said, it's, it's not that often you see a head coach at a kind of power five school fired, fired for cause. Um, and it certainly won't be a, a very clean thing if, if that's the way it goes. So um, I, I can see any any scenario happening at this point, um, and I, I think we're still you know several weeks away from really knowing what what the, what the end result is going to be here. Let's uh, add another uh, person to the chessboard here. So let's talk about Maryland's president Wallace Lowe, who gave a kind of interesting um, press conference on August fourteenth where he, first of all, it seemed, I, I rewatched it yesterday, he seemed to be doing it totally contemporaneous or extemporaneously, which I thought was unique given all of the legal matters swirling around him that he didn't come out and just read a statement. Um, it, it was in the impression of some that he really launched some barbs at his own athletic department, particularly at the training staff, um, publicly, I think uh, Paul Feinbaum said something like, "I've never seen a president." I'm, it's my paraphrase, but effectively throw throw an athletics department under the bus like like he had seen Low do on that day. Um, but tell me a little bit about that day, and then what some of your reporting has led to kind of provide greater context of where Low fits into all of this. Yeah, and so the the question surrounding Wallace Low the. the president here for I don't know nearly a decade I think um, is how, how far up the ladder does does accountability um, and culpability end up, end up going in this thing so Wallace Lowe comes out and, and he says the, the quote was you know that he accepts moral and legal responsibility for the mistakes that, that led to Jordan McNair's death um, and that surprised a lot of people and it certainly angered a lot of people that support DJ Durkin and felt like um, you know it was a, a freak accident and that the, the school should not you know accept responsibility and certainly without all the facts kind of being being put out there. I don't think it was uh, an accident. Wallace Lowe is a former law professor um, with a, a long legal background. I think he knew what he was doing. Um, on, on one level, you can say he was showing some some sympathy and humanity and compassion for, for what happened. Um, there's, I've, I've heard plenty of other cynical or, or maybe slightly more cynical takes that, that maybe there was some reason behind it. Maybe he wanted to make sure that um, you know, the, the school's insurers know that, the, that there's no wiggle room here and, and they're going to be on the hook for, for whatever comes eventually, regardless of findings. Um, I, I don't know what motivated him that day, but I, that, that was a huge stake in the ground um, that, that 
was polarizing for a lot of people, but it's also something that's hard for, you know, Maryland can't take back now. And certainly ensuing, ensuing facts and, and uh, there's been one report that's come out, investigative report, that has kind of laid out a lot of the mistakes that kind of support what Wallace Lowe said that day. Um, I'd say since then, there's a, we've had kind of maybe three main things that concern Wallace Lowe that, that I think would be something if I was an investigative body, I'd, I'd kind of take into account. One is a, a year before Jordan McNair's death, the former athletic director, Kevin Anderson, had proposed a plan that kind of shifted the oversight of the, the medical side of the athletic department, the, the trainers, the, the sports doctors, from the athletic department to the um, kind of associated medical school. So what that means is that the trainers would not feel like they were reporting to the head coach. They, they wouldn't feel like they're reporting to the athletic director. That there, there's some there's some you know barrier there, and their their line of reporting is to the medical school. So therefore, they're kind of enabled and empowered to make decisions that are based solely on health and safety. Um, so the, different schools do it different ways. That that kind of way, this independent model is kind of where more schools are kind of pointing toward. Um, Wallace Lowe rejected it. He didn't want to give up the, the, the power. He, he, didn't, he didn't want to allow an, another institution effectively to, to have say over, over people that are working in the athletic department. So that's, that's one, one thing that people could, could take issue with Wallace Lowe at. Um, another one we reported that when he actually assembled a commission or started to assemble a commission to investigate the culture of the football program, um, some of his phrasing was a little bit uh, mealy mouth. He kind of said, um, you know, a lot of this stuff that happens in a lot of programs. You gotta, you gotta make sure you know that you know football is a tough sport. Um, kind of in a way that, that might have colored or shaded, um, you know, the, the 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 context of the investigation. So that's something else that people could take issue with. And then the third one, I told you, we we discovered an anonymous letter that was sent from a parent in December of 2016, a year and a half before Jordan McNair died, um, and it was sent to Wallace Lowe's office and. When, when we first sent that to them, um, you know, Wallace Lowe had no memory of it. They since did discover it, um, and then they forwarded it to the commission investigating this thing. But, you know, if you're, if you're trying to consider his, his accountability, you might wonder, well, why didn't Wallace Lowe take that, take that letter seriously? Why didn't he uh, do something more about it when it was sent to him at that time? So there's there certainly questions that could be asked of Wallace Lowe as well as the, the current and former athletic director. Um, and it's one of the challenges of this thing that it, we're not talking about did this one person do wrong? You know, is there a, a system in place for this kind of screw up to, to happen and, and, and impact a kid or a team in this manner? The uh, letter you you referenced um, from the parent, I think, was on a September 30th story you and Roman Stubbs did, which was sort of a deep dive into the allegations where you interviewed the number of former players and then you reported on yeah. this letter. The letter, if I remember correctly, was a it was printed and hand delivered. Yes, and it was also uh, electronically delivered to, to other people. Okay, okay, so there is there is an online. So okay, so that that that's what I was trying to get at was, yeah. were, were, there, were there other ways of corroborating the fact that this had been sent to people at Maryland who should have maybe taken it up in a more serious way? After that story was written, then the Durkin defenders, particularly among the booster set at Maryland. Um, kind of uh, uh, got their dander raised. There was a story in the Maryland student newspaper, The Diamondback, that quoted some boosters pushing back against uh, the story you and uh, Roman Stubbs had written. Um, one person in particular, 
um, whose name is escaping me. Perhaps you'll remember him. I think, oh, I think his name is Rick. Rick, Rick Jalecki. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So tell me about him, what, uh, what his pushback was and, and how that spawned a, a story unto itself. Yeah, so the, 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 my two, two takeaways from that student newspaper story, and the student newspaper in Maryland has done a really good job uh, reporting, reporting on this from, from day one. Um, but the, the two things that really stood out from that, that story in particular was that uh, a lot of these boosters, we already know all these boosters were still behind D.J. Durkin and are, are upset the way the schools handled it and feel like Durkin should be back on the sidelines you know, yesterday. Um, but they, they placed a lot of blame at Wallace Lowe for accepting responsibility for, for the mistakes that were made. And um, this one booster kind of put blame on Jordan McNair for his own death, and he kind of cited the fact that McNair, uh, you know, wasn't in the best shape, and they found a gallon of water in his locker that had been unopened, and therefore, uh, I guess he wasn't hydrated that day, which, you know, who knows? This is a baseline test. This is where you're supposed to find out what kind of shape kids are in, and I don't think anyone knows how hydrated he was or wasn't that day. It just means that that particular gallon of water he didn't open, so... Um, the, the, the booster's quote there pissed off a lot of people around the program and uh, to the point where that booster was supposed to go on the team's road trip the following or a few days later to, to Michigan. Some players found out about it and, uh, and they, 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 uh, they, they told the athletic department and the football program they, they didn't want that guy on the trip. And to the, the football program's credit, um, they, they told that booster he could not go on the trip. And this is a pretty prominent booster, former president of the, the, the fundraising club, the American the Terrapin Club, it's called there. Um, and he's he's and an, he's an attorney, right? If I rem- if I yeah, he's a he's a personal injury uh, uh, attorney um, in, in in the Maryland area. And I called him the day after that Michigan game, thinking that he might kind of want to apologize or provide a little bit more nuance or context to his comments. And he really just kind of doubled down and um, said, you know, to, I mean, to his credit, he said a lot of factors contributed to his death that that day. But he said very pointedly that. Um, you know, the trainers and coaches um, did, did, are, are not to blame. And, he's, you know, perhaps they're not to blame. I think there, there's more facts that need to come out on, on that and what their roles were that day. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure this attorney's, you know, in, in place to know exactly what happened and what didn't happen. I don't know if you've ever done a little bit of digging. Have you gone on YouTube and seen some of the ads that he does for his law firm? I did. The big dog. But yeah, he has a forum called BigDogSmallFirm.com, which I think is the greatest, <laughs> the greatest URL for a law firm that I've ever heard. Um, yeah, but, I mean, you get that sometimes. I mean, the, if you're doing personal injury, sometimes you got to stand out. And, I mean, I remember in Albuquerque, we'd have very familiar uh, billboards for, for people like Ron Bell. Ron and, Bell, um, you got it. <laughs> you know, here we are like 30 years later, and it still stands out to me. Um, and it's because, you know, they have something, uh, a little marketing that's a little bit outlandish and, and memorable. Well, but that booster has certainly done some marketing for himself, or at least gotten his name out, though not in a particularly uh, flattering context. It seems, have you noticed that Maryland's investigation or the committee that they've tasked to investigate this has been shaped by the public perception of this? Because I think at the end of the day, a school's internal investigation will go the direction it ultimately wants if they really want to make a move or feel compelled to make serious moves they'll conduct a robust investigation they'll interview everybody they'll try to dig up anything they can find and if they want to go if they want it to go away um or or if they recognize that they don't want to maybe under under uh undergo the expense of 
of acting on something like this, then they'll conduct a very different investigation. My sense of New Mexico, when Bob Davey was under the uh, Klieg lights for his alleged misdeeds, um, was that there was that kind of inner tension about where they wanted this investigation to lead, in part because they weren't quite sure that they could do anything about it. They didn't have the cash on hand to buy him out, um, you know, of, of his salary. And so, you know, you don't want to find yourself in, a, in an uncomfortable situation where you've, you've, you've made some very distressing findings only then to follow up by saying, well, I can't do anything about it, or we think he's still, he's still a hunky-dory here. So what, what's gone on with Maryland and has the investigative work, which is still ongoing um, and doesn't seem like it's, it's due to finish any, any moment soon, has that been at all shaped by, you know, what's, what's come out in the uh, intervening time? So it's a little bit complicated. Not, I'll try not to make it more complicated than it should be, but we did try to do a whole story asking, you know, can you really ever have a truly independent investigation on, on these kind of matters? Um, so in Maryland, the, there's all the public universities in Maryland are overseen by something called the University System of Maryland, and that's where the Board of Regents um, is attached to. So. The, the Board of Regents isn't necessarily attached to the flagship school in, in College Park, but it, it oversees the entire system. So while a slow initially announces this investigation, the Board of Regents say, you know, this is a serious matter. We're going to take we're going to take over the oversight of that that investigation you announced. So now you got this 17 member uh, Board of Regents, all politically kind of appointed, that are overseeing the whole thing. So they create an eight member commission to investigate. Now the commission is curious in a lot of ways. Um, there's a couple of retired federal judges on there. There's a, an orthopedist, but it's also got people like Doug Williams, the former Redskins quarterback, who's the general manager of, uh, of the Redskins now, or the pseudo general manager of the Redskins. Bonnie Bernstein, the, the longtime sports journalist. Um, Tom McMillan, who served three terms in Congress. Uh, Robert Ehrlich, who was former Maryland governor. So these are people that are not professional investigators. You know, these are people that uh, have ties to either the university. Uh, or the area, or just to the, the, the regions that are, that are kind of assembled this commission. So it's not a profession, professional investigative body. Now, so I, I think a lot of the investigation has actually been done by a, a prominent law firm in this area called DLA Piper. And it seems like they're kind of doing these interviews, and they're the ones that are going to kind of forward the information to the commission, which will then prepare a report, which will then submit the report to the Board of Regents, which will then consider the report, and then presumably make any kind of personnel decisions which it only has so much leeway in because they don't, they don't hire and fire coaches. So then they have to kind of recommend to the president of the university, yeah, you should fire the head coach or you should not fire the head coach. So it's very complicated in the way it all works, um, unnecessarily so, you, you might say, and that's the reason that we're nine weeks into this thing and uh, still there's no kind of end or definitive end in sight. On that group, just as an aside, I'm always curious why I could see why the retired – judge seems like somebody who would be a bulwark on one of these investigative bodies. But if anybody thinks through that, and that of the people that you just listed would, would presumably be the most qualified people, a, a, a judge is, uh, in terms of skill set, probably the least uh, skilled in doing any kind of investigative work. This is not, uh, it sounds good in one way. On the other hand, if you think about what a judge does, they are, first of all, they have the authority of, of, the, uh, of the court to compel 
uh, information that they don't have in this case. This is not a this is not a criminal investigation. This is a, a university investigation. Nobody um, has to talk who doesn't want to talk. And the other thing is a judge doesn't spend time trying to um, connect with uh, you know college age athletes and, and trying to get them to spill the beans. It's just not something that any judge <laughs> has probably had a lot of experience doing but that they, they all you know this was at, at new mexico the person who who led the bob davy investigation was a was a retired uh a long time retired judge and it, it and who it, it according to my reporting acknowledged to some people um in the course of his work that he just felt he was ill-suited um to really do the the kind of work that they needed to do ultimately they shopped out their investigative work like maryland has to a uh, to a law firm um where so as we sit now with in this nebulous state where do you where do you see things going um do you get the sense that durkin is just as committed to staying in this job as he was the day he was put on leave do you have you gotten any sense that there's some softening there or some efforts that are being done behind the scenes to sort of see whether or not there's a happy medium point for a uh, settlement for him my sense is that D.J. Durkin feels like he's going to be kind of absolved of wrongdoing, and that, um, and that anything that might have been uh, over the line in his program, he wasn't directly involved with, and that you know he he deserves to be back on the sidelines. That's been my sense from from day one, um, and I think that's why he hasn't wanted to get into settlement discussions because he feels like he's going to he's going to kind of be cleared through this whole thing. Um, I think a lot of people. Certainly, out, people outside Maryland um, feel this way, but a lot of people inside the, the program or the school think it's hard to see him ever return to the sidelines. It's hard to see him recruiting for the school. Hard for, I mean, Jordan McNair's parents have said that, you know, no kid should ever be, he should never be allowed to coach another kid, you know, again. It's hard for me to see him recruiting for Maryland with something like that out there, um, especially when you can think of what other coaches are going to say, and, uh, you know, when on the recruiting trail. So, um, I still have a hard time seeing him ever ever coaching this team again, but you, you know these these things they can go any way. Um, you know he's he's not Urban Meyer, and this is not Ohio State. Um, but it's it just not, nothing would really surprise me at this point. But I do we, we are inching closer to something. There's the, the Board of Regents meeting this Friday, uh, the 21st. It's very possible the report's done by then, and that they'll consider um, they'll consider the investigative report and, and maybe make decisions. You know days after that. So. My guess is within the next week and a half to two weeks, there might be some kind of action, and and there might be a little bit a little bit closer to resolution here 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 in Maryland. It seems, at least from the stories I've read, it seems like it's largely been your your reporting has largely been driven by talking to people. Have has anything spawned out of public records requests? Have you made certain public records requests, or put it this way? Um, knowing what you know now about how the sort of mechanics of these investigations work, um, are there the kinds of public records requests that anybody who's covering a college sports program or a college football program ought to consider making? Yeah, I actually just sent a note uh, earlier this week asking for updates on some of my public records requests. So we've made several, um, seven or eight, I would say, um, Starting, you know, in the, the days after after Jordan McNair was hospitalized, um, I would say we've received nothing helpful thus far. Um, I think we've gotten three responses. One was a denial of a request 
And I can tell you that one was uh, we requested a copy of surveillance video that would have shown the practice field the day he the day he um, uh, suffered heat. Stroke. And why was it on what um, on what claim did they deny it? How did they? I believe that was privacy grounds, um, and it was something that we we internally discussed here if it was something worth challenging, uh, and you know we we might at some point. Um, but it's it's a request they they haven't even shown. You know the Jordan Jordan McNair's attorneys haven't seen that yet either. So it's it's something that we we do believe exists, um, that we know exists, and just something that they've not made available to to anybody. Um, uh, we got a couple other requests that they just said they simply couldn't find what what we were hoping they would they would look for, and then several others that are still being processed. So I would say you know of course public records can shine a, a huge light in a lot of these areas. Um, especially when we're talking about communication between some of the, the principals involved. Um, and in a fast-moving story, as this one has been, and, you know, public records, they, they, do, not, they do not get unearthed in a very quick and expedient manner. So I, I think a lot of things that we hope to have seen, you know, in, in August and September, we might eventually get, but it might be 2019, and, um, you know, hope possible the whole world's moved on to, to another story and another tragedy by that point. But we're, we're going to keep at it. And like I said, I want to keep sending them notices and saying, hey, are we, are we getting closer? Because we, we really think people have a right and a need to know, know this information. The other thing, I don't know if you've run into this, both in terms of what the university will say, what anybody will say, or as it relates to public records requests, is, uh, is you know, student privacy issues and FERPA, um, which you know, in the spirit are rather affirming uh, things to take into consideration. Uh, but when it comes down to an investigation, I, I feel like these things often are used to protect administrators and coaches uh, and not the students, the, the, you know, the purported student privacy laws, or at least the way in which uh, uh, hinting at student privacy laws or alluding to student privacy laws um, are used to really just kind of put up a, uh, a, a protector around non-students in this case. I don't know if that's something that you've yeah. run into. Well, we, we've been anticipating it more so than we've run into it. And the example I'll give you is the, the I told you they wrapped up one investigation. It was the one that was specific to the, the events on May 29th, the day that, that Jordan McNair suffered from heat stroke. And we really thought that that report would be heavily redacted, um, especially because uh, Jordan McNair's family's attorney had kind of um, signaled some concerns early on about, you know, how much information they wanted out there. So we thought we were going to get something that was just, you know, pages and pages of, of you know, black boxes. Um, it turns out uh, almost the entire thing was unredacted. And I challenged them on about two and a half pages that were redacted. And the next day they made those unredacted. So um, in that sense, they, they, they have been somewhat open and transparent. And so they deserve credit for that. Um, I have no idea how this next report is going to look. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, possible accusations and allegations, and maybe they didn't corroborate it all with multiple people. So I'll be, I'll be very curious, you know, if, they, if allegations are spelled out, if names are attached, um, and just how detailed they get and how much they make public. Um, they, they've been saying, you know, they believe in transparency from day one, and uh, I think that the real test is to see what exactly they share from, from this next investigative report. What led me ultimately to start reporting on the Davy, uh, the Davy allegations were records requests I made last year for athlete exit interviews um, after I had seen in some totally unrelated email or uh, in a uh, batch of emails 
this reference to student athlete exit interviews and the scheduling of them, something I wasn't even familiar with at the time, and later learned that this was something that at the end of, I believe the spring sports seasons, every NCAA member institution is required to conduct exit interviews with a broad spectrum of athletes. I, I've since learned kind of every school does this differently. Um, what was nice about New Mexico, it, at least up until the point where I requested them, was they were maintaining notes from the interviewers of the kinds of things that the, uh, the athletes, the exiting athletes were saying. Uh, included in that over the two years that I had requested it were um, some comments of, of, uh, of concern from former football players talking in a fairly mildly captured way about issues with Bob Davey. There was nothing particularly um, shocking in, in the notes, at least, and the notes were paraphrasings of what the athletes had said. But it was clear that there was something going on there that warranted attention. I'm curious if you've had an opportunity to request anything like that just to see when uh, when Maryland might have been hearing things about Durkin or whether or not this was reflected in any in any kind of document that's uh, that's available. Yeah, I mean, we actually had discussions about this going back to when you first published your, your stories on the exit interviews. Um, so we, we have not gotten anything like that so far. Um, I'm, I'm obviously very interested in that. Um, and I've also looked into what other universities do because uh, it seems like the ones that really have a, their finger on the pulse of their program, they don't wait for exit interviews you know, at the end of someone's senior year. Um, they do something with every athlete at the end of each season. So they're, they're, and then these are kind of anonymous in nature. So they're constantly knowing what complaints are out there and what concerns are out there. Um, and it should, to Maryland's credit, one of the things they instituted um, as a result of, of Jordan McNair's death is a more of a real-time reporting system. And all, every Maryland athlete has access to this online portal where, you know, they, they can go in there any, any day and anonymously kind of say, hey, this is going on in the program. I think the athletic department should look at it. So um, maybe, maybe that's the model for other athletic departments going forward. Hopefully it's something that student athletes feel like, um, you know, they can take advantage of and actually have a, have a platform to, to voice their concerns without fear of, of retribution or punishment of, of any form. All right. Well, Rick, I'm keenly interested in how this story plays out. On one hand, it feels like there's some elements that are different than than the same old song, but in other ways, and it kind of speaks to the global nature of, of the problems that you're reporting on, it also feels very familiar. It feels like this kind of story is is a, a movie we just keep watching over and over. So I'll be I'll be intrigued. The, the ultimate resolution, the, the resolution might might tell us which side of that that really falls on, whether it is the same old or whether uh, or not this ends up being something different. And, and really raises some kind of awareness or makes other college programs perk up about, about the way they handle themselves and treat their student-athletes. All right, my friend. Well, it was good having you on the podcast. I hope this is among the, uh, the most luminous feathers in your cap. Yeah, it's one of the best hours of my day so far. <laughs> All right, buddy. Take care. <laughs> you too. And so, there you have it. I would again like to thank my guest, Rick Mace. You can find an accompanying story to this podcast and all of my Lobo-related content at nmfishbowl.com. You can send me questions or comments to editor at nmfishbowl.com, or you can publicly challenge my virility by tweeting to me at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. 
The NM Fishbowl podcast is now available for downloading on iTunes. If you find your way over there, please like and subscribe. And finally, the housekeeping, I suppose. Last week, I sent UNM Athletic Director Eddie Nunez a follow-up invitation to appear on this podcast. He continues not to respond. But the beat goes on with a number of other terrific guests. In fact, I've signed up so many, I may have to start doubling up in some of the forthcoming weeks. But that is a problem I'm delighted to have. The music you hear is from the Freak Fandango Orchestra and their song, Requiem for a Fish. Thanks, as always, for your ears. And please join me the next time. Until then, I'm Daniel Libet. <laughs>